Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is where we are this morning. Uh, while you turn there, I want to briefly remind you, and I, I do this occasionally just to, to keep you up to date. Yep, kids, head to the tables if you haven't, the kids' tables. Uh, briefly remind you of my, we'll call the philosophy of preaching. There are a lot of things going on in the world, in, in our country, in our community, in your, life, uh, your lives and in my life that I could preach on. Uh, I could pull a topic and say, we need to talk about this today, or we need to talk about that today. And, and there are those times when that has to be done. I, I've done it in the past, and I am certain I will do it in the future. But my concern for us as a church, for you as individual believers, is your discipleship. And I might could preach a series of, you know, ten ways to fix your family and, and, and five ways to, to, to grow your bank account or, or whatever the, the different ways and the different perceived needs are depending on the time of the year and what's going on. But what is most important for us as believers is to internalize Scripture. For us to be prepared in and out of season to give an answer for why we believe. And if we are internalizing things like the Psalms, the passages that don't necessarily lend themselves, at least not easily, to application but we're internalizing them in such a way that we are having a changed heart toward God because of our time spent there, then it doesn't matter what comes your way. As a matter of fact, that is the entire purpose of this psalm. It doesn't matter what comes your way. God can provide, and in most circumstances He will provide, but what you need in those circumstances is his presence more than anything else. And He promises that to His people without qualification and without equivocation. So week to week to week, I preach so that you can hear Scripture taught, broken down. You take it, you absorb it in bite-sized pieces, and, and, and it's a lot of bites sometimes, so the meal's a little longer some Sundays than other Sundays. But then when the time comes, you, you have the, the, the vitamins and minerals, the nourishment from that meal to get you through whatever. And no, nothing sparked this. Somebody even talking to Michael about his... No, no, it's not that. Uh, just regularly, and, and I appreciate this from people who do say, Michael, I wish you'd preach on this topic sometime. I actually do appreciate that because, one, that lets me know what you're thinking what's going on in your life, and two, what I believe firmly is that all Scripture relates to all of life. So you may have an issue where you wish I'd preach on X from this chapter, when in fact I preach on Z from this other book in the Bible, and you go, wow, that hit me where I was. I thought I needed this, but I really needed that. That had nothing to do with me. That all had to do with the Holy Spirit. 
And then there are other situations where, you know, social media and pastors getting together and talking, well, how many of you have preached on this and how many have preached you on that and talking about the topics and the various things. Are, we, are you discussing this controversial issue this week or that controversial issue next week? And, and usually, no. A steady diet of God's Word will prepare you for every controversial issue that comes up. I firmly absolutely believe that, not just because Scripture says it, but, but that is the main reason, but because I've lived it. I've seen it in my own life, where I thought I needed one passage and something happens, and, and it, it was other things that God brought to mind. So that's why the Psalms that don't always hit us as, wait a minute, this isn't going to give me a one, two, three, four list I need to do. No, nope, sometimes you just need to hear God say, what you need is me. And that is all over Scripture. Especially this morning in chapter 16 of the book of Psalms. God provides His presence. That's the, the, the theme we're, uh, we're looking at this morning. As in most of the Psalms, there's a lot here. Uh, these are, the Psalms are emotional they're very often responses to circumstances that are going on. Very often they're responses to multiple circumstances. So when David or whoever is writing the psalm writes it, he, he, they are bringing in a lot of information and producing a lot of responses. And sometimes it jumps around, sometimes it's very focused. Most of the time, we don't know what in the world they were writing about meaning what, what instigated the psalm. Most of the psalms are uh, anonymous. Uh, they, they sometimes have as their heading of David or something like that, but that can mean like David, not that he wrote it, but this is a psalm kind of like what he wrote and those sorts of, of things. Never do they come with a description, or rarely do they come with a description of what was going on that precipitated the psalm. But every time we can read it and we think, oh, I've been there. I've needed that. And that's the psalm this morning. It, depending on the Bible you're using, your, your heading might say confidence in the Lord. That's not scripture. That's uh, the, the translators of the Bible putting a theme to it. That's a good one. But that's what that's the idea. But our confidence is in the fact that God is always there. Read Psalm 16 with me. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The, sorrow of those, the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, when my thoughts trouble me, I always let the Lord guide me, because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, 
For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This psalm can be divided up, and again, depending on the translation you have in front of you, uh, it may be divided up into four groups of scriptures, and that's, uh, that's the way we're going to look at it this morning. God provides His presence, and what does this passage tell us about the God who provides His presence? Four different uh, things we get to learn about God and, and who He is. First of all, He is our only God. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that, that He is our only God. The psalmist begins, verse 1, in asking for protection. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. Protect me from what? Mm, we don't know. This is the, the, the questioning of the psalms. The, what was the context? Was, someone, was this a battle issue? Was this just people being uh, annoying, what was it? The, 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 the context of the passage seems to lend itself toward the idea of just daily living. Crops, whether they grow or fail. Herds, whether they live or die. Whether the, the basic things of life go the way they need to. In our lives today, it would be, is the job going to be there tomorrow or next week? Or is there uh, another hurricane brewing somewhere or, or whatever? That those are the, the, just the, the basic questions of what does tomorrow hold? And the psalmist is asking for protection in the basic things of life, the day-to-day. God, protect me from those things. But in asking for protection... When the psalmist says, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you, he immediately goes into who God is to him. Verse 2, he says, I said to thee, Lord, you are my Lord. It's interesting, I say to thee, very specific, the only one, you are also mine. We see in the second verse, the psalmist, when he asks for protection in the first verse, he immediately goes to confidence in that protection, confidence in the one from whom he is asking protection immediately. Protect me, God. You know why I can ask you that? Because you are the God, you're, all, you're, you're the only one, and you are my God. And not only am I talking to the God who is my God, I have nothing good besides you. I don't have anything in life and we, we think, you know, chocolate is good, and donuts are good, and jambalaya is good, and, 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 and Marvel movies are good. I'm, I'm giving away what I think, don't I? Uh, you know, we, we have these ideas of what good is, and, and good is like the baseline. We don't like good, we like great, we like awesome, we like radical, we like tubular, we like, what do the kids say these days? I don't know, I'm not, I'm not up on... The, the hip lingo, and I've proven that from Sunday to Sunday. Nonetheless, there's always something that's better than good. But in Scripture, good was it. Good was the top. It was the best one. It was, it, you didn't say anything better than good. You might say the good of good, and that would mean the goodest. But that's it. That was the only superlative you would do above good. And the psalmist said, I have nothing good. I have nothing in my life that equals you. Nothing. 
If you think to, over to the New Testament, uh, one of the uh, Pharisees, I think, asks Jesus and says, good teacher, and I don't remember the, the question he asked now off the top of my head. He says, good teacher, and Jesus doesn't even bother answering the question. He says, why do you call me good? Because that word has meaning, loads of meaning in Scripture. And the psalmist says, the Lord, my Lord, the one I have confidence in, I have confidence in him because I have nothing good besides you. This echoes the, the first commandment in uh, Exodus 20, and I want to read it correctly because I can paraphrase, but I want to read it right. Do not have other gods besides me. What does the psalmist say here? I have nothing good besides you. He uses the same language. There's an echo here of that first commandment. It's not just that I have nothing good besides you. There is nothing besides you. I have nothing good because there isn't anything good-er than you. But the psalmist isn't done. He, he, he's, he's speaking from his own personal experience. I, the, the Lord is my Lord, but there's a group of faithful with the psalmist. He continues to say, talk about the holy people in the land. They are the noble ones, and his delight is in them. This group of faithful people also follow God. They are also his, he is also their Lord. The Lord is their Lord. They trust him for protection. What we see here is that you, when you trust God, when you feel like you're on an island of misery and despair, when you feel like you're the only one that is truly trusting God, the psalmist says, there are others. You are not alone in your faithfulness to God. See, this psalm isn't so much about God's faithfulness to us. It is, I'm going to just say 50-50. It's also about our faithfulness to God. Our continued faithful response to Him. And it wanes, and, and it, we, 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 we have better days than others. Elijah if you remember the story when he gets up on Mount Carmel and, and it's, all, it's him against a few hundred prophets of Baal and, and there's this, been this drought and the drought's gone a long time and Elijah gets up there and, and he, he tells the, what we're going, uh, the prophets of Baal what we're going to do is we gonna, uh, or you're going to have your sacrifice and I'm going to have my sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice to your gods and I'm going to sacrifice to my God. But we can't start the fire. The God's going to have to start the fire. Your God's going to start your fire, and my God's going to start my fire. And, and, and whoever wins, I mean, whoever's God, whichever God does it, that, that's the God. That's the one. That's it. And the prophets of Baal do all their stuff, and they dance around, they cut themselves, and uh, Elijah has a good old time with it. Is your God asleep? Maybe, maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, maybe he, he's indisposed at the moment. I don't know what's going on. And in the midst of this drought, then, when it's Elijah's turn, he says, bring water and pour it on the altar and pour it on the stones and pour it on the meat and uh, waste the water, basically, is what he says. And he prays, and God sends down fire, and everything's burned up. The meat, the stones, the water, the dirt. This 
great triumph. And the next scene we see is uh, Ahab and Jezebel, and Jezebel saying, I'm going to die if he ain't dead by tomorrow. Talking about Elijah. Elijah runs off and says, I'm the only one left. There's nobody faithful. And God, the angel, comes to him and says, there are 7,000 with you, Elijah. Folks, you're not alone. When you are in the midst of whatever your despair is, when you are in the midst of just life in general, there is a church family, a family of believers that is with you and going through sometimes the same things, sometimes worse things, but trusting God with you and for you. We have a church family right now in Afghanistan that is being martyred for their beliefs. I'm not talking about somebody from our church. I'm talking about our family of believers in Afghanistan. We pray that they would persevere because they are worshiping their only God. This morning, it was seven or eight hours ago probably for them, some of them may have gathered in church for the last time because the Taliban heard about their service, showed up, and killed them. We won't know about this for a while, but it will begin to trickle out. And God is faithful. He is their only God, and that's why they continue to worship Him. And they continue to worship Him, we continue to worship Him, because it is folly to follow other gods who aren't gods. That's what the psalmist continues with here. The idea is... If I follow the false gods, the false gods will take care of me. Wouldn't they be thinking that right now in Afghanistan? And that's probably the command. Give up your Christianity and and maybe you'll live. Maybe they'll let you survive. But give up your faith and you follow the false god of Islam, you'll be taken care of. That's the pressure. That was the pressure for the psalmist, that these false gods will take care of them and the real God won't. And to the world, sometimes when the martyrs die in their faith, sometimes the world goes and says, look, see, God didn't take care of them, they're dead. Y'all, they're more alive than they've ever been. And that's what they knew. And that's why they could stand in faith and take the torture, the bullet, the sword, the abuse, whatever it is that is being meted out on them now. Because the opposite is true. God will take care of us, and the false gods will never take care of us. Those false gods aren't gods. There is one God. So much so that the psalmist will not worship them, nor will he even mention their name. I will not speak their names with my lips. Will not mention them. That, that word mention or speak, actually carries with it this idea of calling on them. It's not just that I won't say their names, but I'm not going to call their names. Or another way to put it is to take their name. Like the third commandment where God says, do not take my name in vain. The psalmist echoes now the third commandment saying, I will not take the name of these false gods and call on them. Our only true God is also, number two, our only provision in verses 5 and 6. You're my portion, you're my cup of blessing, you hold my future. 
You've set the boundary lines in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. This two-verse section shows us that He meets our right-now needs. He meets our right-now needs. This idea of a portion is what is marked for us. Allotted portion. It's what is ours. We get what is ours. God takes care of us. Cup of blessing. This would be everything good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. I believe it was James who wrote that. God meets our right now needs. How many of you woke up to some form of electricity? Some form of uh, conditioned air? Food in the cabinet? Something you could eat? A way to get here this morning. Those of you who aren't here this morning, but you're watching. You're watching on some device, a phone, a computer, maybe later on on a TV. All of these things are God taking care of your everyday, your right now needs. Well, my internet went down for three hours. Sorry, first world problem. Did you die? No. No. God took care of your right now needs. But this passage tells us that He doesn't just take care of our right now needs. He takes care of our future, our coming needs. The boundary lines, He says, have fallen in place, uh, have fallen for me in pleasant places. The, the, the boundary lines here, it, it, He is giving us an image of when the land was divided up among the 12 tribes, and every one of them had boundary lines, and within those boundary lines was their portion of the land. He's saying, for me, in my life, the boundary lines have fallen well. I'm good. And I think if, if we were honest, certainly in our Western American civilization, we would say, Y'all, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for us. My portion is good. But it's not just the now that God is taking care of. The psalmist goes on and he says, Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. There is a future, God says. You hold my future. That boundary line that is for my right now is also my future. And that future has already been lined out for me. I'm not a fatalist. I'm not a determinist. I I don't mean to say that what's I'm not going to say, well, fate has this for me or that for me. What I am saying is God has a will and a plan. God has your future. It is known by Him. It is held by Him. So what happens tomorrow is held by God and was known by Him. And in three weeks and three months and three years and 33 years, the future you have is held by God. And He will provide whatever it is you need at that point. And I don't know what it is you need. Uh, Depending on the circumstance, we could probably speculate at what you think you want. But God provides your need. All the way to the end. I have a beautiful inheritance. The psalmist here in this section, five and, verses 5, excuse me, verses 5 and 6, is confident in Yahweh's ability to provide for every need. Today's need, tomorrow's need, my eternity's need. 
He is our only God. He is our only provision. And number three, He is our only comfort. Verses 7 and 8, I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Anybody ever been up at not sleeping, worrying about things? I always let the Lord guide me. Or in, in, uh, another way to say that is uh, I place the Lord in front of me always because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He is our only comfort. The idea in these passages, these two verses, is that sometimes what I think I need isn't what God provides. Or He's not providing it in the uh, time frame that I think I need it. It's not coming as quickly. It's not, I'm not getting the things that, 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 that I thought were going to help me. And in those times, God is our comfort. He's not any less our provision, but when He knows the plan and we don't, it is then that we need His comfort through those times. God is there in our time of need. There's, there's never a time where you go through a situation that God is not there with you. And if you can't see Him, it could be. And I'm going to say this with all the caveats and all the, the buts, and all the be-carefuls, it could be that in that moment, God does not want you to see Him. But I'm going to even contradict myself at the end of that and say, it's probably you just ain't looking hard enough. The Lord is never hard to find. It sometimes is difficult to see through our circumstances and three, see through the, the thicket. I, going hunting, growing up, I know I've talked about this a lot. Uh, we hunted rabbits most of the time. That was what I grew up hunting. Uh, my grandfather raised beagles, so we, we ran the rabbits with dogs. And, and, and the, the places we ran the most of the time would be in thickets where it would be a road down one side and a pasture on the other and, 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 and just big or small, it'd just be a thicket of briars and bushes and impenetrable just about. And if you happen to get down in there, and occasionally we would to kind of jump the rabbits up so we could put the, the, the dogs on the trail, you could walk into that thicket and work your way through it and you get to a place where you think, I, I'm... How much further do I have to go in this thing? It didn't look this big from outside when in fact you were mere feet from the road on the other side. Perfectly clear, a pasture with nothing. Easy walking, easy moving. But because of the thickness of the, the, the tangle of, of briars and brambles, you couldn't see that you were at the edge of a clearing. think we get there in life. We push through this thicket for so long. There's so much around us. There's so much going on. And it is so covering our eyes and hiding our vision that we think there's no way I can go on. God's nowhere to be seen. There's nowhere. There's no opening. There's no rescue. There's no hope. 
when we're just on the edge of it. And God, to mix my metaphor now, is my dad in the swimming pool, a foot from the edge, trying to teach me to jump off. I'm right here, come on, just jump. And I think when we can't see God, we think we can't see him, he's on the other side of that edge of the thicket. And he's hollering, sometimes like my grandfather would, to let us know which direction to walk if we were in the thicket, which way to go. He's on the other side, just push through. I'm here, I'm with you, I'm, gonna, I'm comforting you, I've got you, but right now in this moment, I need you to push through whatever it is you're going through. This is not you getting through things on your own strength necessarily, but this is God saying, I need you to do some work here. There are things you need to do to get through this, and I've got you. God is there in our time of need. Worship stems from His ever-present help in our time of need. Psalm 46 says that God is an ever-present help in our time of need. And our worship stems from that. I will bless the Lord. I will worship the Lord who counsels me. And then he goes on to say, even at night when my thoughts trouble me, that's uh, another way to translate that. And, and there's some, some of the Hebrew here is difficult in these psalms. Uh, at night... At night, my heart instructs me, is what this says. Now, I'm smiling at Etta because the heart is wicked, deceitful, and desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And that's, that's in Scripture. And yet, the psalmist says, it is my heart that, you, that speaks to me. Why in the world could he say that? Because... While our heart is wicked, when our heart is changed by God, when He gives us a new heart, and we turn our heart toward Him, and we only hear from Him, then from within God speaks. In our spirit, God's spirit speaks to us. I mean, this is what it means when I, I felt like God was leading me. He didn't pop up, hello, and, and tell us to do whatever the next thing was. He spoke from within. He led. And that's what this passage is saying. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The desires of my heart, if I'm delighting myself in the Lord, the desires of my heart aren't M&Ms and candy corn. My, my heart's desires change. If I have given my heart to the Lord, the psalmist, having given his heart to the Lord, then his heart guides him appropriately because it is a new heart changed by God. God's presence is our comfort. We have this help from within. He counsels me. We ha at night, when, when our heart speaks to us, he is leading us, he is helping us, and I always let him guide me. He is ever before me. His presence is our comfort. And if he is ever before me, I always let the Lord guide me, verse 8. Or uh, I place the Lord in front of me always, is another way to translate that. If he is ever before me, then he is ever in every situation. So when you're pushing through the thicket, where's God? He's right in front of you. When you don't think God is anywhere near what you're doing, where is God? 
He's right in front of you. When you think that there's no way that God could be walking with me in this mess right now, where's God in hurricanes? Where's God in COVID? Where's God in cancer? He is right there in front of you. Every time. And what greater comfort than security in God? If you think you've left all the doors unlocked on your house, do you sleep well? Or do you think, has the back door unlocked? It'll probably be fine. But tonight will be the night somebody tries to break in. And I've left the door unlocked. I ought to go unlock, I gotta, I gotta lock the door. But I want to go to sleep. And on and on and on. So you, oh, probably you finally just get up. You lock the door. You go to bed and what happens? You're gone. Right? Because comfort or security was comfort. A little lock on the door and you slept like a baby. Now think about when you are resting in God's hands. How much more comforting is security in God? We are secure in His hand. Because He is at my right hand, because uh, further up it said our future is in His hand, He holds our future, we are secure in His hand. He guides through our spirit. And then we see that we are solid through our trials. We are steadfast. We stand firm through our trials, but more importantly than standing firm through our trials, more importantly than standing, uh, uh, um, than pushing through that thicket, is to be faithful to God while we are in the thicket. I'm in the thicket. Now what? Well, God's not getting me out. I got to trust somebody else. More hunting stories. I was little. I was probably, to hear my grandfather tell the story, and I vaguely remember it, I was probably four, maybe five, but probably not. I started hunting early. First I carried nothing, then it was a BB gun, then it was a 410. I worked my way up. At this time, this would have been nothing. And my grandfather told me, stay right here. I think he was going to look for my brother, who was off probably wasn't 20 yards away, but he said, stay right here, I'll be right back, I'm going to go get Bruce and, and bring him back. Okay. Okay, Big Dad. I called him Big Dad. I was probably there about five seconds. And I got scared, I guess, I, I don't remember. But for whatever reason, I started looking for him. I didn't trust that he was going to come back, that he was in charge of the situation. He knew those woods like you know your neighborhood, okay? He knew right where he put me. He would have found me in an instant. I probably could have hollered and he heard me. But instead, I went looking for him. I trusted, bad analogy, but let's just go with it. I trusted in other gods. I was in a difficult place, and I looked for some other way out of the situation, I was not committed to my grandfather and his better ways. 
When we get into that thicket in life, our tendency, our temptation at the very least, is to trust in ourselves or someone else or something else and not to trust in God. So it is more important not that we are solid and we push through that thicket. We're not solid in our trials, but we are solid in our faith and commitment to God. Faith in and commitment to God. To God. So when he says, stand right here, I'll be right back, we stay there. When he says, hey, come this way, hey boy, come this way, and we push through the thicket, he's right there where he told us he would be. He is our only comfort. And number four, he is our only salvation. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, All this before it, right? Therefore, because of all this that I've written, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body rests securely, right? Comfort, security. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. The, The psalmist is, is wanting us to ask the question of, uh, uh, ask him after verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. How can we not rejoice knowing all this? How can we not rejoice knowing our only God, our only provision, and our only comfort, our one true God provides and comforts? How can we not rejoice It's the whole thrust of verses 2 through 8. And it is this this taking care of life, these thickets in life, these these issues that we come up on, this day-to-day situation, that is the thrust. But it isn't just that God will take care of life. He takes care of eternity also. And He takes care of eternity as our only salvation. We might have a tendency to cry out to God when things are bad and we want Him to fix those things. And then when those things get fixed, we say, all right, thanks, got it now, appreciate you. And we go on our own direction. And I believe God steps into the life of the unbeliever, the one who hasn't trusted Jesus as Savior, and fixes things along the way in order to call them to Himself. To say, see, it's me. See, it worked. See, I'm here. Now, trust me, not just with that, but with everything, including your eternity. But that eternity is only taken care of through salvation in Jesus Christ. The psalmist says, I can rejoice because my body rests securely. We have confidence in our salvation. And this is very New Testament. 1 John 5.13. John wraps up his uh, first epistle by saying, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have salvation. Not that you may feel pretty good about it. Not that you might be okay with it. Not to give you a boost for today. Not to give you anything but knowledge, comfort, security, assurance that you are saved. We can have that confidence in our salvation. Especially when we realize and when we admit that our only salvation 
is through Jesus Christ. God will never leave us. Once we are His, He will nothing, nothing can take us out of His hand, the New Testament says. The psalmist says, you will not abandon me to Sheol, to, to death. God will never leave us. This is a psalm, verses 2 through 8, this is a psalm of God taking care of those who are obedient, who are obedient unto salvation, and He will never ha- abandon His own. See, the promises of God, the promises of Scripture, aren't to the unbeliever. Uh, other than the promise of destruction, the promise of hell, the promise of separation from God for eternity. The promise of this entire psalm is that for the one who follows God, for the one who trusts Him, God will never leave him. And this isn't naivete. This isn't saying this, this, this isn't blind optimism. Oh, God's never going to leave me. It, it, this is confidence. This is the confidence of Job, uh, chapter 13, verse 15, where Job says, "Though he slay me, I don't care if God kills me, I'm going to be faithful to him." Right? I don't care if. These things I'm worried about actually happen. Even if God slays me, I will serve him. I will follow him. This is the confidence of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they stood before the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look, if you don't worship me like like I'm telling you to, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And then what's your God going to do? And they're like, Oh, but I don't care. Throw us in. He kills us, he does, he saves us. Either way, you know what we're going to do? We're going to worship him. We're going to follow him. It is confidence. See, the expectation of the believer, and it is a good thing, the expectation of every one of us is that and should be that tomorrow we will wake up And we will make it through hurricanes that come, or COVID that comes, or cancer that comes. Every day we wake up in the Lord saying, I'm good. He's got me. He's going to take care of me. But the expectation of the follower of God is also to know life regardless of the ending. So tomorrow, it might be a hurricane or COVID, or cancer that gets me. But you know what? That does not shake or change my confidence in God. That's this psalm. We expect to make it through, and we expect to make it if we don't make it through. I mean, how, how can we not rejoice How can we not stand side by side with our Afghan brothers and sisters in Christ when they say to their murderers, let me live, I'm going to worship Jesus. Kill me, I'm going to see Jesus. See, it's Jesus or it's Jesus. I win. That's life. That's the life of a believer. 
That is God providing his presence. And that's what we get every day of our lives. And heaven is the ultimate provision of his presence. That's it. That, that is, that's the, the golden ticket. That is him saying forever with me, in me, about me, to me, everything me. And that is what we live for and that is what we die for and that is what we long for. And heaven can be ours. We will just trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Admit that we are a sinner. Admit that, that we sometimes trust other things besides God. That, that we do things we shouldn't. We've broken God's law. We, we got that. I don't know that I have to convince any of you here. But, but it, it, for you to know it and for you to admit it, is two different things. But it doesn't just start with, stop with your admission of guilt. You have to lay that guilt somewhere. That guilt's got to be paid for. You need to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying for your sins. That Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And he was paying your penalty. He took your sin. He took your punishment. That was your cross. And I believe, Jesus, that you were my substitute on that cross. And that is all I need in order to experience salvation. You. Not works, not things, not, not, not achievements, not, not memberships, but Jesus. And then you make a decision to follow Jesus, make him your Savior. Receive the free gift of salvation that he is offering. Say, Jesus, I trust you, I choose to make you my Savior, save me. And he will. Blink of an eye, it's done. You don't get a card, no marks on your body, you don't glow or anything like that. It's a heart change. That, that new heart that the psalmist talked about, the one that now guides you, the Holy Spirit living in you, leads you to all truth. That Holy Spirit in you, the Jesus who saves you, the God who loves you, provides his presence to you. The moment you trust Jesus as Savior, won't you do that today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, well, for, for you being the only God. For your provision for everything we need. For your comfort in our discomfort in our lives. And for your salvation from those things in our lives that we forget to thank you for. And when we aren't saved from life's tragedies, we are saved from an eternal tragedy if we have trusted Jesus as our Savior. God, I pray that you would work on hearts this morning, whether they're here in the room or watching online, to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, to make the decision to follow him. And know not a distant God who's far off, but a God who is completely present in our lives and in our hearts. God, speak to us today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Maybe you'd like to discuss that salvation, ask some questions, just say, I want, I want that. We've got Tom at the Welcome Center in the back. We have a couple of deacons at the back wall who would love to talk to you about that. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you. Maybe you have some thickets you're working through and you would like prayer. Whatever it is that you need to do this morning, there's a list up there of things that God may be working on your heart about. Respond in faith to Him. Let's stand, let's sing, let's hear what He has for us today and do business with Him as He leads us.